Hello, I'm Kyle Caldwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look how to get the best out of your savings and investments. Before we start, a big thank you to those of you that left us a review or a rating in recent weeks. It really helps us grow the podcast, so please do keep them coming. And as always, we'd love to hear what you would like us to talk about in future episodes. You can get in touch by emailing us on otm at ii.co.uk. In this episode, I'm joined by Simon Evan Cook of Downing Fund Managers. Simon's a multi-asset fund of funds manager whose day job involves understanding whether a fund manager is a good investor or not. He is therefore extremely well-placed to help me tackle this week's topic, how investors like you can separate fund manager look from skill. I caught up with Simon last week and started by asking him to run through the main qualities he looks for in a fund manager to help him assess genuine skill in a crowded marketplace, given that there are thousands of funds to choose from. Yeah, that's such a good question. Luck is so important in investing. Quite a few investors will tell you otherwise, right, that luck doesn't matter, that it's all skill and therefore luck's irrelevant to them. But they're lying, right? It it absolutely is. It's such an important part of investing. Uh, You can get the right, right side of it, the wrong side of it. In terms of what I'm looking for in funds, you're obviously trying to minimise the chance of buying a fund manager who's been lucky and maximise the chance of buying a fund manager who is very, very good. And that's what we're all about. Uh, certainly in my team, we're just trying to find the amazing fund managers. You're certainly right that there's a massive choice there. There are thousands of funds to pick from. How we whittle that down, well, the first thing to say is it's probably easier to get rid of the stuff that isn't good, first of all, and then what you're left with within that will contain the great fund managers, but it won't be all great fund managers, right? So in terms of what we get rid of, we get rid of uh, funds that are run by funky processes that we just don't think work. Really, we're not trying to do anything more complicated than find investors who invest like Warren Buffett or like Anthony Bolton used to for Fidelity, who's more of a value type of manager. These, we're not reinventing the wheel, in other words, we're just looking for fund managers who are running tried and tested processes. And those processes, as far as I'm concerned, tend to hinge on looking at the fundamentals of businesses, deciding whether a company is good or bad, what it's worth, and then deciding whether the share price accurately reflects that. If it looks too cheap, they buy it. If it looks too expensive, they sell it. And it it simply is no more complicated than that. One of the things that we definitely try to avoid, and this does come right down to the, the issue of luck, are funds where you see they have made a lot of money very quickly, but maybe they've done it off of one big bet. Quite often, that's a big bet on being in the market or out of the market. So maybe if they were fully invested in equities and then suddenly they went to 20% cash. Now that's a bit like the ring in Lord of the Rings. It's very tempting for a fund manager to try and do that because if you can get it right, you can suddenly be a long way ahead of your peer group. And if you're a long way ahead of your peer group, you're going to make a lot of money and have a good reputation. The thing is, it's just not repeatable. You can't keep doing that. Timing the markets on a repeatable basis is impossible. So if a fund manager has made money by jumping out the market and then jumping into the market at the right time, great, well done you, but I don't think they'll be able to do it again. Uh, And if anything, they'll probably try and do it again and end up causing more damage than not doing that. 
likewise as well you can look at big sector bets as well yeah if they there was always an example i used for this type of thing there was a fund manager i used to hold back in the financial crisis uh and in february 2009 so a month before that crisis troughed he'd seen that banks had obviously been walloped they had dropped by so much and it was kind of obvious that at some point they were going to rally hard you just didn't know when that point was this fund manager basically placed a massive bet in February on banks, but then they tanked even more. I think the share prices dropped another 30, 40%. And it was so bad that he was kind of hoiked off his own fund and had to pull those positions off. And basically, I don't know what he's doing now, flipping burgers in McDonald's for all I know. Uh, But the point was he took a punt, it didn't work. But then later that year, I met a European fund manager who'd basically placed the same bet but he placed it a month later. And this guy was being carried aloft on the shoulders of the sales guys, right? He was just so popular because he'd managed to catch that exact right point. But I don't think his career lasted because again, you just can't repeat that kind of call. So as you just mentioned, market timing, it's very difficult to call. So that's 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 one thing that you look out for. The investment style of the funds, that can also have a big bearing on whether a fund manager is skillful or lucky. As... In terms of luck, you know, the fund manager could be in the right place at the right time. They could be, you know, a growth-focused uh, fund that has benefited from, you know, the past decades of, you know, loose monetary policy. So in terms of investment style, how, how, do, you, how do you then separate luck from skill? Because um, as I just mentioned, you know, when, when the fund manager is in a good place, when the style is going well for the fund manager, the rising tide, it can lift all boats. Uh, you're exactly right. And the, the trick there is to understand what the fund is. So if it's a growth fund, know that it's a growth fund and make sure you're comparing it not just to the market. It's right to compare it to the market, but the market will contain value stocks as well. But you're comparing it to a, a growth benchmark or other growth managers, because that way you know whether the outperformance is just because they're buying growthy stocks, in which case you may as well buy a, a kind of factor-based ETF that buys growth stocks because they're not adding anything over that. So yeah, absolutely look out for that. For me, the interesting thing on that front as well is sometimes it's not just managers can be lucky. If you take the reverse of that, I mean, how many fund managers over the years have been unlucky? Like they launched a value fund in, I don't know, let's say March 2020, when value just got absolutely murdered because value funds were holding... They were holding airlines, they were holding hotels, and then the pandemic hit, right? And there was no way you could know a pandemic was going to hit. Those companies looked cheap and they looked like they were recovering, but just a piece of bad luck wiped them out. I'm sure there are fund managers who are out of a job today because that just happened to come along when they were a value manager. All of these things are completely relevant. So when you're looking at a fund manager's track record, you absolutely have to take into account the style in which they invest. So I held for the previous 10 years before 2020, I held on to value fund managers for 10 years, knowing full well that they were underperforming the market, but knowing that when value came back into vogue, back into fashion, as it inevitably would do, that these would be the funds that would save your portfolio. And sure enough, in 2022, that's what you saw. You saw value funds, in many cases, actually make money while growth funds were being walloped very, very hard. So it's so important to understand that you're comparing them to something that's relevant and not something that is completely different to what they're trying to do. And when the style is a headwind, as you just mentioned, it was for over a decade for value-focused funds. 
is that a truer test of the fund manager's credentials and whether you know they are a superior stock picker? It is. It, it absolutely is. There's lots of ways of looking at it. And for one, it's a test of resilience, right? Because it is a depressing, horrible existence coming into work every day and basically the market implying that you're a complete idiot because the funds, the stocks that you're picking just aren't working. And you take that period again, go back to 2020. If you're a value manager, that was probably the most depressing period you could imagine because you had stocks like Amazon and Google and Microsoft were just flying to the moon. And it was obvious why they were flying to the moon. The story behind them was so obvious. So people would have just said to you as a value fund manager, well, why aren't you just buying those stocks? We're all locked at home. Amazon do home delivery, dummy. Why aren't you buying Amazon? And the answer will be, well, we don't like the credentials of the business on a 10-year basis it looks too expensive we have all these amazing companies here which look really cheap and we'll think they do really well but no one's listening right because you're just looking at what the market's doing and it seems so obvious what you should be doing that people just give up and you start losing money and you start losing assets so it is entirely testing but the other reason why it's interesting to look as well because there are some occasions when you buy a value fund manager and their style is underperforming but somehow through sheer skill maybe a bit of luck thrown in as well but sheer skill they are managing still to beat the market because they are picking stocks that in their own right are recovering from their troughs so yeah for the last 10 years we had value managers that still managed to outperform despite the fact that growth was winning so that's another really good test as well but it can also be a false positive because if you get a value manager who's also winning in a growth market your question then is, have they crept across to the other side? Have they become a growth manager because the pressure is on them to become a growth manager? Uh, and likewise, when the style's winning as well, you've got a value manager and value's winning. You probably want a value manager who's been more into value and so is underperforming and growth is winning because that way when it does turn, you've got those, those funds that have stayed true to what they're doing and they're likely to outperform not just the market but the value Uh, index over that time as well so there's a lot to take into account for sure and when a fund is underperforming and you know it could be because the style is going against it suppose the most important thing that you know investors don't want to see happen is the fund manager change his or her spots you know change the investment approach or the style of the funds because that can then signal that you know that they're not confident anymore in their overall process yeah it's it's Absolutely the worst thing you can do. It is the biggest red flag in the professional fund buying world. It's not just me. I mean, most pro fund buyers will tell you this. If the fund manager changes what they're doing, fundamentally, if a growth manager becomes a value manager or more realistically, a value manager becomes a growth manager, given what's happened over the last 10 years, you need to get out of them because you bought them on the basis that they were going to be buying value-based stocks. And if they're suddenly doing something which they're not used to doing, they don't have an expertise in, then why on earth would you hold that fund, right? You can go and find someone who has been a growth manager and been doing that for years. You don't need someone who's a tourist, if you like, and has gone switched over to the other side just because it's what's working. I mean, it can happen as well to a fund without the fund manager capitulating because sometimes it's the CEO of a company that owns the fund that capitulates and sacks the value manager and brings in a growth manager. And they'll tell you it's for the right reasons, but that, again, is a massive red flag. So if you see a manager being hoiked off a fund who you liked and bought for a reason and replaced by someone else, 
Again, for me, that is a complete no-no, and I am 99% sure I'm at that fund. The reality is, with um, active funds, there's no such thing as the Midas Touch. Even the most highly regarded fund manager names, they go through rough patches of performance, and they cannot deliver outperformance over every single time frame. In terms of assessing how long to give a fund manager in order to try and identify skill over luck, is there a certain time period that you look at, Simon, or do you look at multiple time periods to assess whether the fund manager has a good track record of adding value through stock selection? I tell you what the best period is, it's 25 years, but that is of zero use to your listeners or to me, frankly, because by the time 25 years is done, you're close to retirement and you've missed the point. So 20, that's, that's the best period. And when you look back on fund managers, if someone has outperformed over a 25-year career, luck had very little to do with that. That was skill. But more practically, how can you do it? There's a People look for certain time periods. What's the magical time period? Should you look at one year or three years or five years? The truth is, I would say that is a complete red herring looking for a specific year. And I'd point you to the quote that was originally, I think, about Russian history, which is that there are decades in which nothing happened, and then there are weeks in which decades happen. And that's entirely appropriate for financial markets because there can be years and years when markets just drift upwards. And it doesn't really tell you much about the fund manager whatsoever. But then you can get periods, perhaps like the pandemic sell-off or what we saw in 2022, when all sorts of stuff happens all at once. And as a fund buyer, that's what I'm looking for with funds. I'm looking for specific time periods. And this is where it gets harder for a retail investor because you tend to get spoon-fed very defined periods of six months or a year or three years based on a fact sheet or a performance table that you're reading in the back of a magazine, maybe. That makes it really hard because you're looking for episodes, essentially. And... I think a really good example of that is when I was running funds in 2016, the second half of 2016, there was a massive switch. So for the first half, growth funds had won, and as they had been winning for years after, but for six months, and it was after the Brexit vote, and then again after Trump got in, values suddenly switched to winning because there was a hint that inflation might come back. Now, if you looked at that six-month period, it was a little clue to what was going to happen in 2022. You didn't know when it was going to happen, but you knew, having looked at that, that if inflation came back, growth funds, by and large, were about to be murdered by the market and value funds would do very well. So when I'm looking at time periods and judging fund managers, I'm looking for those episodes. And unfortunately, it's very rare that they start on the 1st of January and end up on the 31st of December which is what you'd need to see as a retail investor if you haven't got access to be able to pinpoint the point when a rally started and ended. So I'm not sure how much use that is, but if it does help, I'd say three years tends to be a pretty disastrous time period in which to choose a fund manager. It tends to be long enough for that style to have worked, done its stuff, and perhaps it's about to top out and go back. And as a retail investor, The biggest mistake that I see being made over and over again is jumping from a winning style or jumping into a winning style after it's won for three or five years. It starts to fail very quickly after that. So you then jump onto the the style that's won over the next three years and you just jump from something that has done well to something that's about to do badly over and over and over again. And that eats up far more of your wealth than high charges ever do. 
And of course, um, you know, past performance, it's not necessarily a guide to future performance. But one thing that often repeats is that when funds become too big, the fund manager struggles to repeat his or her past success. This is because as a fund grows in size, the investment universe becomes smaller. And in turn, the fund manager has to take into greater account the size of a company. And if the company is too small, then depending on the size of the fund, they may not be able to buy it because they'll need to own a larger stake in that smaller company due to the size of the fund. Now, for some funds, such as those investing in you know, large cap global companies, fund size is less of an issue. But for other funds, such as those investing in UK smaller companies, the fund size, it could cause the fund manager to have you know, a, a, effectively a hand tied behind his or her back. So what are your thoughts on fund size, Simon? Can it dilute the skill of a fund manager? It absolutely can. And it is one of the things in our own fund of funds. So within the fund of funds, we're obviously picking the funds that we think are going to do the best over the next three, five, 10 years. Fund size is one of the factors we are hottest on because you're absolutely right that a fund that has become too large becomes extremely difficult for the fund manager to manage for all the reasons you've just said. The most, the biggest reason I think is that if you take a fund like Woodford's old fund, so even when he was at Invesco, that fund changed massively. And people obviously remember the disastrous end of the Woodford fund, but what they forget is that back in about 2010, 11, 12, the performance of that fund was a shadow of what it looked like before because he had held smaller mid-cap companies and he had a lot of exposure to them. But once he'd been through the tech bubble bursting, which is when he made his name, and then once he'd also done well in the financial crisis, money flooded into that fund and it became a large-cap fund, not a multi-cap fund. And the problem is that if you find a smaller company that is an amazing investment, and it's it's easier in a way to find amazing investments in the small cap world because it's less well-researched and companies can grow a lot faster when they're small caps than when they're large caps. But if you find an amazing little company, uh, but you're running a £20 billion fund, realistically, you can only put in 0.2% of your fund. So even if that stock then doubles, if you own 0.2% of your fund in it, then you're getting 0.2% uplift, which is a hiccup, effectively. But if you can put 5% of your fund into that, you're getting a 5% return on that stock doubling, which is clearly going to make a very, very big difference to the performance of that fund and to your own wealth. So you are absolutely right that fund size matters, and particularly in the small cap world as well. The rule of thumb that I've used for the last 10 years, and it is very much a rough rule of thumb, is if you're looking at UK smaller companies' funds, £400 million seems, for whatever reason, to be about the biting point. It's not suddenly at 399, it's great, and a 401, it's terrible, but it's a biting point at which point maybe the performance starts to slip a little bit. So that's the point generally when we start to look at, if we've been in a fund and it's done amazingly well for us, it's time for us to start finding a fund that is maybe 50 million in size, which is about the perfect size for a small cap fund. So in that instance, you know, 400 million is the sort of cutoff point. You're looking more towards boutique fund managers there, then, aren't you? Rather than the the big behemoths, the likes of you know Invesco, M and G, etc. 
it tends to be that way. You you can find some funds tucked away in the uh, in the in the vaults of a, of a big company. I know that Fidelity have got a, a very good UK smaller companies fund that they've done a very good job of keeping to around about that size. But yeah, by and large, boutiques boutiques are great for all sorts of reasons. Right? I'm a massive fan of boutiques. They've got skin in the game. They're motivated. They're entrepreneurial people with a lot of chutzpah, a lot of get up and go. You know, who are prepared to be different than the market. But another reason is they tend to be running smaller books of, of money um, and they tend to stop the fund from getting too large before it does get too large as well. So, yeah, boutiques are a great place to find UK smaller companies funds. And, yeah, conversely, the big companies, if they have to close it at 400 million, it's almost not worth them getting out of bed for. So they don't bother more often than not. We've talked about what you do like in a fund. We've discussed timeframes. Um, you mentioned earlier the sort of number one red flag when it comes to um, owning a fund and then potentially selling it, which is, you know, if it changes its investment style or approach. Are there any other sell signals that you look for that, you know, investors should look out for? Well, we've mentioned a certain N. Woodford once already, uh, and without wanting to point any fingers, but I think it's not unfair to say, but then hubris is one of them. And I think, you know, the inquiry about the Woodford scandal will go on for years, but my own concern with fund managers when I look at them, and I'm lucky again here, I get to meet them, but it is looking at signs of overconfidence, perhaps signs they become a little bit too big for their own boots. And at that point, I think it's probably just as easy to say thanks for the memories and move on because perhaps at that point, they're not paying as much attention to the details. Perhaps they're not if they had challenge before from colleagues, they're not accepting challenge now because they are too powerful within their own organization or within their own world. It's just not worth the risk of holding them when you can find a fund manager who is perhaps earlier on their journey and doesn't have all this baggage of character around them. And so again, that chimes nicely with the smaller fund thing, that it's just another reason why finding fund managers running smaller funds is a better way to go. I think in general, you know, especially compared to 12 years ago when I started in this industry, there's definitely been a shift away from star fund manager culture. You know, you see a lot more of a team approach and a lot more sort of co-managers named on funds compared to, to back then. But I mean, what's your view in terms of a lead manager? I think, you know, retail investors still like to see who's accountable for performance ultimately rather than it being, you know, several names listed as co-managers? I think retail investors like that because it's so hard to get information as a retail investor, right? You want to be able to see the whites of someone's eyes and get a feel for them. I think you want, from my perspective, a happy medium is the way. It's quite good to see an investor who is the bigger head for a fund, uh, someone who's got a bit of character and therefore you can judge what the fund is about, what it's going to do. And you can have a little bit of faith that from one human being to another human being that you can trust this person to invest in the way that they said they're going to invest. What you want to back that up, I think, is a character who works and plays nicely with other investors. So they bring on a team. So they've got different uh, investors within their team and they encourage challenge. And that's one of the things that we try and pick up when we're interviewing fund managers is, What's the relationship like with their team? Are they trying as far as they can to get ideas out of that team and then trust them and use them? Or are they simply this godlike figure who've got a bunch of sycophants sat around them who are simply puffing them up and telling them what they want to hear? If it's the former, 
that makes the process way more powerful, right? Because five brains is better than, than one. But if it's five brains with four of those brains simply reaffirming the kind of crazy godlike uh, delusions of the one, actually that's worse than just one, I think. So it's important to check on character. My thanks to Simon and to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or a rating and follow the show in your podcast app. And if you get a chance, tell a friend about it too. You can join the conversation, ask questions and tell us what you would like us to talk about via email on otm at ii.co.uk. In the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interactive Investor website at ii.co.uk. See you next week.